In a few moments, we are headed to the communion table, right? The, we take the, the wine or the grape juice, the bread, which signifies the blood and body of Jesus, which is an invitation for us to more deeply grasp the ongoing rescuing work of Jesus in our life. It's an outworking of something he's already done, uh, something that's happened in history, in, in, in human history, and then in our history, and that grace gets worked into our life more deeply and worked out in our life more fully as we go. Part of the reason we come every week to the table is because we believe we need it every week. One of your elders named Mike Spencer is a professional counselor. Mike uh, said to me one time, he said, you know, a lot of times in counseling, you're trying to communicate the gospel of grace to people, the goodness and freeness of Jesus, and they have this automatic translator in their head, and all they hear is, do better, do more, be better, be more, when actually what I'm trying to communicate is receive grace, receive grace. And so we're going to the communion table to receive grace, which is actually, you know, it's the major story of the Bible. We've been, for these last, for these four weeks of Christmas, we've been doing the four, uh, uh, four weeks of Advent, we've been looking at creation as a kickoff to a whole series in the Old Testament. And we've literally been reading a chapter a week. We read all of Genesis chapter 1, all of Genesis chapter 2, and all of Genesis chapter 3. So that you get a little bit of a break today. If you'll open your insert, I won't even have you stand up because this is so short. Here's the one verse we're reading today. Not a whole chapter, just a verse. This is what the Lord says. We'll come back to this. The Lord says to the satanically empowered serpent in the Garden of Eden. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm told that the human brain doesn't fully form in its full wisdom until age 25. That may be true. Both times I'm very aware of having almost died. I was not 25 yet. One time involves a train. Some of you know that story. The other time involves a lake. And some of uh, you haven't heard that story for a long time. Maybe some of you never. Most of you never. In May of 1992, I was a college student. I decided I'd take a break from my summer road construction job and work at YMCA Camp Lakewood. It's this large YMCA camp in the Ozarks, beautiful area, but it's, built, it's, it's around this lake, Camp Lakewood. And because of that, in, the, in the, the preview, the training for the staff, you had to be graded on your swimming to, ga- to gauge where you could go in the lake. Uh, which was not a big deal for me. I was a fit college student. I'd grown up swimming. You know, I grew up at the swimming pool, right? Not a big deal. And you had to you had, had the swimming test, and you, the, you had to swim out to this floating dock. And if you stopped there, you had you got a blue band, which meant you couldn't you could go just a little bit, you know. And, but if if you just touched it and came back, you could have a white band. You could go anywhere you wanted in the lake. Um, again, I didn't have much issue with that because I was a swimmer, so I thought. And I dove in the water, and I don't know if it was. I don't, to this day, I'm not sure. Was it colder than I thought? Had I not been swimming very, I hadn't been swimming for years, but you don't really forget how to swim. Maybe I was sick as maybe my asthma had kicked in uh, because of the coldness of the water. I'm not sure, but I do remember being on the way out to the dock thinking, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I may not be able to make it back. 
But if you stop at the dock, you get a blue band. And you got to walk around with a blue wristband on. But I thought, literally, I, I remember thinking, I'm not, I can't make it back. So I got out to the dock, and I touched it and started to come back. Um, why? Because I'm a 20-year-old guy. I'm arrogant, right? I, want, I do not want to wear a blue band. I want to be, I want to do it myself. And I started on the way back, and I probably was, I don't know, five or ten strokes in, and I realized, and this is so, I don't know, it's a couple hundred meters out and back, right? So it's like, it's, it's far, it's open water, so it's farther than it looks if you ever swim on open water, which also might have been part of the problem. Um, and I started coming back, and I started thinking, I, I'm, I'm not, I cannot make it back. And I didn't know where, I didn't know how far I'd gone. Had I known I hadn't swum very far at all, I probably would have gone back to the dock if I could have made it. But I was so, I was getting disoriented, and my arms were getting really heavy, and I could barely keep going. So what I did was I tried to keep going, right? Take another stroke, take another stroke. I just, I want to do it. I'm on my own. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it happen. Uh, and I think it must have been at the point where I started to black out. I thought, I am in, really in trouble. And got out a barely audible, help, as I'm going under the water. True story. Only to find out that the waterfront director, Pamela Sexton, had identified my struggled swimming on the way out to this floating dock. And on the way, before I even touched that dock the first time, she was in the water coming for me. And um, I'm going under. I said help loud enough for nobody to hear. And uh, she grabbed me, you know. And, you know, she turn me over, put me on her hip. Here's what she didn't do. She didn't get out there and say, Roger, let me give you some instructions on swimming. Here's what you need to know how to do. She did not encourage me, saying, you can do it. Why? Because I couldn't, right? She didn't come out and give me, like, law, like, you should know better than to try to swim like this if you're not certain you could do it. Was that true? Yes. But that's not what she did. What did she do? She rescued me. I was a rescued man. I thought I could do it, right? Um, when she came out, I didn't give terms to her, right? I didn't give terms. I didn't say, here, I, don't, I just want you to hold me for a little bit and then make, make it look like I can swim, right? I did, she gave me the terms. Stop fighting, right? Because you know what happens if you fight a lifeguard? They push you under. That's what you're supposed to do, to, to be in control. Because they're rescuing you and pulling you in. I was in trouble. I couldn't save myself. In my autonomy, with each stroke I took, I made it worse and got closer to death. Pamela came out and she rescued this guy who thought he could do it. Um, was I, when I got back to the shore, was I embarrassed? Yes, actually I was. Was my pride hurt? It was. Did I become a lifeguard later to prove to everybody that I could really swim? Partially, yes. <laughs> Did I tell you this so you would know that I could still swim? Possibly, yes. Um, but all of that on the shore when I got back was overwhelmed by one other feeling, a profound thankfulness that I had been rescued. In my pride, I had almost killed myself. I would not be here today. I mean, thank the Lord for Pamela Sexton. Pamela, if you ever watch this, thank you. 
seriously. Advent, Christmas, the coming of Jesus is for one reason. We have a God who keeps his promises to rescue a people. To rescue a people who through their own efforts and independence and autonomy make a terrible mess of their life and bring brokenness into this world. Adam and Eve bring brokenness into this world which we experience and then participate in and contribute to. And what he brings is not encouragement, right? You can do it. We can't. It's not empowerment, like, you know, just encouraging us to power because we don't have any power. It's not good teaching that he brings. Like, just, if you just knew the right thing, it would be okay. What's he say? I will come and rescue you. That's what Genesis 3.15 says. One will come who will bring rescue. And so we say to see today that to live with Jesus, right, on this side of that long story, to live with Jesus means to live a life as rescued people. Rescued people. We needed rescue. In Jesus, we get rescue. You know what? All the other things might come, right? The, the encouragement, the empowerment, the good teaching, all of that comes, but it comes as a result of being rescued. And I think this rescue is what, we, what is salient for us at the beginning and the end of the Christian life. If you can remember when you embraced Jesus the first time, probably you had this sense of like, oh my goodness. I, am, I see my sin clearly and I am rescued from that sin in Jesus. And there's a deep thankfulness. Now, I will say that if you grow up in the gospel, which we want, we want our covenant children to grow up and embrace Jesus and never know a day, uh, God sometimes generously gives us the opportunity to see the power of our sin. And to see what we would be apart from Jesus. And our, an appropriate response to that is, thank you, Lord, for rescue. I see with fresh eyes what's going on in my life. Thank you, Lord, for rescue. We see that at the beginning of our life. But we see at the, the end of our life, too. I've been reading two biographies this year, very slowly. One is by John Newton, of John Newton. One is of Martin Luther. John Newton is the, the, the guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace, the hymn. He was a slave trader, came to faith, uh, this radical transformation, brilliant writer, brilliant theologian, brilliant pastor, brilliant everything, uh, knew the Lord really well. You read his journals, you're like, I just want to be like John Newton. Last thing John Newton says in his life, the last thing before he dies, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Rescue. Martin Luther, possibly, arguably the most significant figure in Western history. The guy who's kicked off the Protestant Reformation, kind of accidentally, but that's what he did. At the end of his life, he said some things he probably regrets now. Oh, that happens as we get older. But knew the Lord, great theologian, one of the most courageous people in history. Here's what he said. Here's the last communication of his entire life as he breathes his final breath in bed. It is this. We are beggars. This is true. Rescue. What comes to the, what comes to the, fore, to the foreground with these two brilliant, deep-walking, Jesus-knowing, 
courage, world-slaying man at the end of their life. I've been rescued. I've been rescued. So I think that our whole Christian life is an invitation deeper into this enjoyment of rescue. In fact, this is really Genesis 3.15 is the theme of the rest of the Bible. I said we're not going to read a whole chapter. We could actually read from Genesis 4 to Revelation 22, right? Or we could just read Genesis 3.15. So we just chose Genesis 3.15. We're going to read the whole Bible or just the theme of it, which is God's going to send one. So set, up, set it up a little bit last week. If you remember, as Taylor preached, Adam and Eve abdicate their calling as the image bearers of God who will extend the boundaries of the Garden of Eden to the whole earth and incorporate us in it one day. They sin, right? They exercise their autonomy apart from God's word, independence apart from God, and they take, and they take, and they usher in then. They're tempted, right, by this satanically empowered serpent. Uh, So he tempts them, but they're responsible for this sin. And then Adam, the effect of that is ushering in a brokenness in this world, which is basically the most empirically verifiable Christian doctrine there is. Like things are broken. Do you know? I mean, really. Think about it. Just look at your own life. Look around, right? Um, And that's a brokenness which we experience, which impacts us, but then which we contribute to in our life and the lives of other people. And really, if you can shape it up, Taylor didn't say it exactly this way, but Adam and Eve teaches there's, there are two ways to live, which becomes sort of stereotypical down through the ages, right? There's the way of dependence on the Lord and his word and receiving from his hand what he gives and in doing that, moving toward what we're created for. Or the way that Adam and Eve choose in the garden, which is autonomy apart from God's word and taking what they desire in the moment and twisting away from their created desire. And in that twisting way, it's a betrayal of the Lord. He said, I don't want what you have. I want to have this. And there's destruction. How does God handle that betrayal? Genesis 3, 15, 14 and 15 is the first thing he says. He's going to speak to the man and the woman about the consequences of sin, but first he gives this curse to the serpent. I mean, he could say to Adam and Eve, it's over, and then we wouldn't be having this conversation. And we wouldn't be here. That would have been the just thing but be just, completely within his rights, is a just God. He's also a merciful God. Right? He doesn't look at you and say, do better. He says this, I'm coming. I am coming to put right what was put wrong in the garden today. I'm going to do it myself. So after this first sin, God speaks directly to the satanically inspired serpent, uh, serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you're theologically inclined, this is what theologians call the beginning of the covenant of grace. God's intention to save a humanity. So all the other covenants, this won't mean something to some of you, but the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, is all encompassed in this. Genesis 3.15 and onward. Some people call this the first gospel. It's very shadowy, but the first gospel. And if you're in Jesus by faith, you're caught up in this. If you're in Jesus Christ by faith, Genesis 3.15 is talking. The effects of it are, have flown into your life, have rolled into your life. And uh, so I put this art piece of art in your book. I didn't, of course, make this, or in your worship booklet. And I don't, don't really know where to talk about this. I just wanted to include it because I thought it was neat. Um, we use this here sometimes. It's by an author named David Arms, and uh, 
I actually got the copyright for this at a doctoral class I was taking, so I just want to use it, right? But I know, it, this is this picture, this four-panel picture of redemption. So you have the first panel is creation where things are good and right. They're not the fullness of what they will be, but there's life there. And then sin comes in, and it, it breaks into creation, and it brings death and destruction and twisting. And then redemption is panel three where things begin to be put right again. They're not quite what creation was but their life again in anticipation of panel four where things with the restoration of all things, which would be like a flavor of creation, but like in hyperdrive, like more, more the restoration of all things. If you're in Christ by faith, you live in panel three, right? Where things have begun, you've begun to taste, but it's not full yet, right? Although it feels like panel number two is very close. It kind of overlaps your life. If you're not yet in Jesus, you live in panel two with an invitation to step into panel three by faith. And in panel three, life in panel three is living as a rescued people. And this short verse here as rescued people teaches at least three things. We'll go through this relatively quickly. There will be one who will come. There will be enmity and there will be victory. There will be one. There will be enmity, which is hostility. And there will be victory. First of all, there will be one. There's this interesting wordplay going on here. It says your offspring. Offspring is a collective plural noun. And then it turns to one. There will be one particular one coming in the future. A, a he who will do what it says is bruise the serpent's head. Though The serpent will bruise his heel. What is this prophetic, shadowy, like very, what's it hinting at? Well, we get to the New Testament. We say, oh, the one who is going to come is Jesus. And you have this picture. This word bruise is a rare word in Hebrew. It only occurs a couple times. It could mean um, it could mean smash, it could be puncture, uh, bruise, overwhelm. It's just, it just kind of means like <clears throat> it's a death blow. But this translation says bruise, that could be okay. But we don't have a lot of options to choose from. The picture is Jesus inflicting damage on Satan, on his head. We show it's, gonna, it's a crushing blow to the head of the satanically empower, in, empowered serpent, Right? And at the same time, there will be devastation done to the sun. It looks like it's, it's permanent devastation. It looks like it's death. But three days later, the resurrection, we realize, oh, it was temporary devastation. But I think we have a picture here. So it's like Jesus putting his foot on the serpent's head, doing a death blow to the work of Satan that then gets worked out in history. So that's the cross, right? It could even be a picture of Jesus lifted up. If you remember, a cross would be lifted up. His feet would be off the ground, above the ground, a picture of the, the son bruising the serpent's head with his own heel. So that's the picture that's going on there. Um, a couple points of application here in, in view of that sort of New Testament understanding of that passage. Uh, the promise is that God will send one. Not that all the people until the one comes are great. Okay? We have this book in our house. This is called the Book of Virtues. William Bennett. A treasury of great moral stories. It's a very good book. I would commend it, right? It's every story is about some lesson that you're supposed to learn, some morality tale. It's good. And lots of heroes in here, lots of people you want to emulate. So this is the book of virtues. This is the Bible. These are not the same thing, right? If you haven't noticed, most of the people in the Old Testament are, how do I say it? 
terrible. If you read the, the genealogy of Jesus, you say, as a parent, you would say, you know, I don't want my kids to be like any of those people pretty much. I had a seminary professor who said, God takes great pains to defame every hero in the Bible. Why? Because it's not a book of virtues. There's virtuous people in there, and virtue comes through it. But it's just, especially the Old Testament is a story about a very faithful God intending on rescuing a people in spite of very unfaithful people. Right? So sometimes I know people get their faith sideways when they, they come, they grow up in the church, and they hear that, that you know, basically all these people are supposed to be heroes, and you're reading, you're like, oh, that person's terrible. Oh, my gosh, that person's no good. That person's no good. This book's no good. It's not a book of virtues. In some ways, it's, in a lot of ways, it's a book of vices put on public display showing that there's a God who redeems people even deeply in vice. Right? It's a book of salvation, redemption, and rescue. Let's not pretend it's a book full of heroes. Uh, there is one. Let's not pretend there are many. Let's not pretend there are many different ways. Right? If there was a different way, God would have chosen it. It cost him his life. If do better was an appropriate response of the Lord to bring rescue to his people, he would have said it. If Pamela Sexton, the lifeguard, could have swam out to me as I'm drowning and said, hey, Roger, swim, you know, and that would have worked, she would have just done that from the beach with her megaphone. I needed rescue. There was only one way. It was for her to swim out and get me. We need rescue. There's one way. It's for God to step into history and say, I'm coming to get you. I'm going to undo personally what was done in the garden today. Yes, it will cost me my life, but I want to rescue a people. We're slow to embrace that. The old theologian Stephen Charnock writes, each person acts as if God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. It's old language. Stick with me. He says the glutton makes a God of his dainties. I think that's tasty food. The ambitious man of his honor, the lustful man of his lust, the covetous man of his wealth, and consequently esteems these things as his chiefest good. This thing that God can't make me without, happy without, that's what I have to have. It's my functional God. All men worship some golden calf set up by education, custom, natural inclination, family, and the like. Uh, this is the strongest chain by which the devil holds the man. So I agree. It might not be dainties. Although between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it pretty much is dainties for me. I'm just going to tell you. right? It's like so many good cookies. Um, what is it that God can't make you happy without? Good grades. The next promotion. Right? Six-pack abs. Maybe you're realistic, so you just say the next promotion. The man or woman we've been waiting for. The perfect house. Being heard and understood by that one person who just won't hear us. All these things might be fine. They are not your rescuer. There was one rescuer. If you could have been rescued by the perfect house, the Lord would have said, go get a perfect house. We can only be rescued by God himself. That's why he comes. He came to rescue. Let's not pretend we don't need it, but when we see that we get it, what is the effect? Well, it's humility, right? Uh, 
I needed rescue. So that when your sin is pointed out, somebody points out your sin, don't be cheeky about this, but here's what you can literally say. It's probably worse than you think. It was so bad that the Son of God had to die for me to rescue me. So you think, you think I'm a little angry. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> I'm a lot more than a little angry. You know, it's worse than you think. It was so bad that Jesus had to die for me to rescue me. It's worse than you think. See, there's a humility, there's a freedom, there's a confidence because you can say, and I've been rescued. Can you believe it? I've been rescued. And that makes us free from judging others in a way. So, like, we're not looking around. The, what's the greatest need of someone? It's not to have right theology. I'd prefer they had better theology. It's not to have the right politics. It's not to act right. What's the greatest need each person has? Rescue. Rescue. Everybody needs rescue. That's the first thing everybody needs. And when we embrace the fact that we've been rescued, we get very clear on who that rescuer actually is. And then, as rescued people, we can be totally free. We're already rescued, right? So when I was getting hauled in by Pamela... I, didn't th- I, had, I was whole, had great confidence, and I didn't think I need to be able to swimming. I need to be able to swim. I didn't have to have confidence in my own ability to swim when she was hauling me in, right? We don't, if we know that we've been rescued, we can freely confess our sin. We can come. We already did our confession of sin, but we can come each week or each day or each moment and confess our sin because nothing there is something that's going to be back into our slavery because we've been rescued. It's the whole storyline of the Bible. There's one who will come and one who did. Now, there will be enmity, as it says here. There is a line of descent from Eve, right, through Abraham, through David, to Jesus. And you can see the Old Testament. There is hostility of evil against that line. But when we get to Jesus, we see that it's not necessarily a, like a physical lineage of people. It's a way of being in this world, the way of autonomy versus the way of dependence on God's grace, the way of looking to a Savior or the way of looking to ourselves as a Savior in whatever form that takes. And these are at, uh, at odds with each other. There is hostility, sometimes it's even in our own self. And we're not talking about the difference between religious and irreligious, right? Sometimes very, what we say, religious people can be very hostile to the gospel of grace. In fact, in Jesus' own ministry, in John chapter 8, I put this in your insert on the right side, Excuse me. Jesus said to basically the most religious people of the day, the Pharisees, <clears throat> he said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and, and am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear my word, hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So it's not talking about lineage, like Satan's spawn, like some B Hollywood movie, right? This is talking about The desires, the way of autonomy. Jesus is saying this very religious group, you're acting like your spiritual father, the devil. And it doesn't stop there. He says in Matthew 16, to his own disciple Peter, his own disciple Peter, who objects to the idea of Jesus going to the cross, he says, I should have put this in there, I didn't. He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, my follower, you love me. You're acting like the spiritual father, the devil, right? Get behind me, Satan. Sometimes that can run right through our own life. There's, there's enmity even in our own soul between that old way of autonomy and the way of grace. There will be one. There will be enmity. And finally, there will be 
victory. So let's not despair. Jesus, I almost titled the sermon The Snake Crusher, because it would be cooler to say that instead of the covenant of grace. But um, we have a... Uh, we, have a, we had or have a children's book out there that talks about Jesus as the snake crusher. And it's got, actually got a lot of heat this year from people who are more sensitive than I am about, like, that's just so violent for kids to hear. Jesus being so violent and crushing the snake, right? And that's just too strong. So if you have kids, here's what they need to hear. Ready? Jesus is the snake crusher. He exercises violence against the work of the devil by taking death to himself. It is a violent reality that he does for us. Why? There was no other way. We don't want to soften it. We can't dare soften it. Jesus crushed the serpent's head so we can be free. And if you're in Christ, you are. It has happened. It is a, a singular event in history, an echo that's still echoing forth in the world and in our life. So in John, Romans 16, 20, Jesus says to the church in Rome, um, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's an ongoing reality to this whole thing. Uh, although it's already happened, it's, it's getting worked out in history. In Revelation 12, this was a Christmas sermon of about five years ago. It's the bottom of your um, sheet on the right side. This is sort of like, I think this is a, the, the picture of what we're, we're living with right now in pictorial revelation terms. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in saying, heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony. And they have not loved their lives so much as to shrink from death. Sorry, that's not exactly what that says. I haven't memorized a different version. But... Uh, there's this picture like Satan's power has been broken by Jesus. He's given the death blow, and it's all working out in history now. The echo of that is working out, and Satan's power is diminished, though. He's active, and he's seeking to devour people, and this is encouragement, like rest in the work of what Jesus has done, right? The, uh, the, the blood of the lamb, the word of your testimony, and not loving your life so much as to shrink back from death, hang on. Hang on. The victory has come. It's being worked out in history, and there's there's evidence that it's being worked out in history. I bring this out about once a year. I haven't done it yet this year, so I will again. This little phrase, uh, toggling back and forth between um, offspring and in the individual, the offspring, the plural and the individual. Sorry, I know it's a little bit geeky, but hang with me. Uh, only happens three times in the Bible. One is here in Genesis 3.15. The other is in Genesis 22, where it says uh, God's blessing Abraham in verse 22, 17, he says, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Plural, singular, together. The other time I didn't put it in here is in Genesis 26. Yeah, yeah, Genesis 26, 40, with the same thing, possess the gate of the enemies. Then no more. You journey on through all the centuries of the Bible into the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew 16, when Jesus is asking Simon Peter, who do you people say that I am? Now Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is a picture of the confession of Jesus being that power that overcomes the gates of the enemy, his enemy, Satan. Is that happening in the world? Well, not if you listen to the news. Is that happening in the world? Here's what I want to remind us of. We do this every, every year or so. In the year 100 A.D. of the known world, about one in 360 people profess to be followers of Jesus. One in 360. Were they sincere, honest? Well, I don't know, but they're professing. One in 360. About 1,000 years later, 1,000 A.D., it's now one, to, one in 200 people. That's some growth. Profess to be followers of Jesus. By the year 2000, it is one in three. Do you see the trajectory? What is happening? He is possessing the gate of his enemies. He is on the move. He is bringing rescue to this world. He is a rescuer. His intention is to rescue a world broken down in sin. And in your life and in my life, his intention is to bring rescue deeper and deeper and deeper into our life. It is an outworking of something that's already done. He's crushed the head of the serpent. He, he wants to work that grace into your life. That's why we come to the communion table every single week. That's what this is a picture of. This is the snake-crushing power of the Son in our own life that broke the power of the devil, that brings grace into our life. We say often, we read this passage where it says, do this in remembrance of me. That is Eng as English speakers and Western thinkers, this gets past us. The Hebrew conception of remembrance is something that's in front of us. So, it's weird, but the way, scholars will tell you the way the Hebrews would have thought about the future is they walk backwards into the future looking at the promises of the past. So when we hear the phrase, do this in remembrance of me, we should flip that and say, put that in front of us. We're walking into the future with the promises right there. And so when we hear, do this in remembrance of me, when Jesus calls us to do this in remembrance of me, it is, do this with the grace that I'm providing you right now. You move into the future through that grace. So we're going to come to the communion table. On page 11 of your worship booklet, under communion, uh, I added one line there, and I got this from Mike McBride. Um, he suggested one thing. It might be better. I kind of traded it. So if you, if you like it, it was Mike's. If you don't like it, it was mine. So um, receiving communion is an active profession that, this is what I'm saying, I receive and rest on Jesus alone for salvation and humbly submit to his lordship in my life. We often say that communion is not for perfect people. It's for honest people, right? We don't, this isn't for people who have got themselves all cleaned up. It's for people who say, you know what? I need rescue. I need what you offer. I need what you offer to love people well in my life, to overcome sin in my life, to love you, Jesus. I'm stuck and I need some help. I receive and rest on you alone for salvation and humbly submit to your lordship in my life. If you can say that in earnestness, not in perfection, Please, not in perfection, in earnestness. Come to the table. This table's for you. 
Uh, if not, or if you're still working out some conflict in your life and your conscience isn't clear that you've done everything you can with another person in the, bo- in the body of Christ to uh, address that conflict, wait, come to the table next week. We serve communion every single week. It's not uncommon for people to hold off, work some things out, and then come to the table next week. But if you're coming, I'm going to invite you after I pray to come. We'll do it this way. You kind of line up on both sides and you come through and get bread and either red wine or white grape juice. And take it back to your seat. Same thing over here. Get the bread and red wine or white grape juice. Bring it back to your seat. And we'll take together. So let me pray and then invite you to come to the table. Lord Jesus, thank you for that overarching promise and your, con- your commitment to rescue us. I love, thank you that I'm a rescued man. Not because of me, but in spite of me and because of you. Thank you for the freedom that is in the rescue of the gospel of grace. Let us, as we take communion, let us taste that. And in delight in it all the more. In Jesus' name.